This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Even in death, Moses and Aaron Wilcox stuck together. They were twins, after all, and identical ones at that. Maybe it's cliche to say this, but the fact was that they did everything together. They went to the same school, started a business, married sisters, and had the same number of children. Even in their pastoral hometown of Killingworth, Connecticut, their friends and neighbors, the people who should have known them best, were often stumped when playing who's who. To think of one without the other was inconceivable. To other people, yes, but even more so to themselves. As far as we know, Moses and Aaron weren't keen on separation and independence. Quite the opposite, in fact. They were far more interested in doubling down on their twindom, so much so that they decided they were going to create a lasting legacy based on this very principle, their own twin utopia, smack in the northeastern corner of Ohio. The brothers Wilcox got some land, moved west, and found themselves in the sparsely populated township of Millsville. But to have a town, you must have people, so Moses and Aaron quickly got to work. They began buying and parceling off the land for a steal, bringing in more and more settlers. Eventually, they would make Millsville an offer. They'd give the town six free acres to be developed into a public square, plus a bit of seed money to create the town's first school. And in return, all the town needed to do was change its name from Millsville to Twinsburg. The town readily accepted the deal. And the name stuck. Not only did it stick, but the town has continued to grow in ways the brothers could never have dreamed. The twin identity has become so baked into the DNA of that town that every summer since 1976, it hosts the Twins Day Festival. It's the largest annual gathering of twins in the world, with thousands of pairs attending. Naturally, singletons and other kinds of multiples are welcome, but for this occasion, the twosomes are the stars. There are all sorts of contests, parades, and talent shows at the festival. Twins come dressed in matching sets, hoping to play up their likeness. And it's there, more than anywhere else in the world, 
where they can be among people who experienced the same rare fortune of sharing real estate in a single uterus. But there's something else there, because it's more than just a celebration of twindom. In fact, the festival functions as an ongoing scientific investigation, centering around the question of nature versus nurture. For years, Twinsburg has drawn researchers interested in studying the effects of genetics on behavior, personality, predispositions, and diseases. Festival participants, for their part, are often more than happy to oblige. It's not uncommon to hear stories of multiples being separated at birth, only to find each other years later, and sometimes with uncanny results. These siblings, who often haven't known the other has existed for their entire life, have been known to develop similar interests, mannerisms, and temperaments. Some would also talk about the feeling that a piece of themselves had been missing. Scientists are only now beginning to develop ideas about why this might be, but we certainly have a long way to go in our understanding. And as for Moses and Aaron, they would go on to spend the rest of their lives together. In fact, at the age of 50, it is said that they became sick on the very same day and died within hours of each other. And not wishing to ever change that, they were even buried in the same grave. I probably don't need to tell you that families are complicated. Sibling relationships are at the heart of so many great stories, from old myths, religious lessons, folktales, and even true crime. Although our genetic makeup might make siblings appear similar, they often can't be more different. And that genetic lottery, a random ticket plucked from the grab bag of DNA, is something that we'll never be able to escape. I'm Aaron Mankey, and welcome to The Sideshow. Depending on where you're listening right now, you may be able to see it tonight. Gemini, one of the most recognizable constellations in the world, is made up of 85 stars that are visible to the naked eye. Its two brightest stars, Castor and Pollux, are named after some of the most famous twins in Greek mythology, and their pedigree was nothing to sniff at either. Their mother was a princess who later became a Spartan queen. The boys had two different fathers, though. Castor was the mortal son of Tyndareus, while Pollux was the divine son of Zeus. The myth tells us that when Castor was fatally wounded later in life, Zeus offered his son Pollux a choice, spend his time as a demigod on Mount Olympus, or give half of his immortality to his brother. Pollux chose to save his twin, and gave him half his immortality. And in doing so, they would travel together between Mount Olympus and Hades in equal measure, never again to be separated. In the story of human history, the specter of twins looms large. For eons, stories of twins have belonged to the realms of old-world religion and folklore. Thinkers have been obsessed with understanding their nature. Accounting for only 3% of natural births, their cultural effect has been outsized and profound. Scientific curiosity about twins goes back to ancient times. Hippocrates, the famous physician, wrote about a pair of brothers who he suspected as being twins based on the fact that the two became sick with the same illness at the same time, which progressed at the same rate, and then cleared up simultaneously. The modern scientific study of identical twins, though, seems to have begun around 1875 with Sir Francis Galton, the cousin of none other than Charles Darwin. The most common twins are fraternal, meaning that two babies are born from two different fertilized eggs. Identical twins result from the splitting of a single egg, and the most rare form of all are twins who are born conjoined, 
the result of an incomplete separation of an early embryo. Conjoined twins are further classified according to how and where they are joined, and they can be fused just about anywhere, sharing any number of body parts and internal organs. Now, historically, such births have caused quite an alarm, often being blamed on the devil or witchcraft. Interestingly, one of the first recorded attempts to surgically separate conjoined twin boys was in the Byzantine Empire during the 10th century, but the first successful surgical separation of conjoined twins was in Switzerland in 1689. Twins have appeared on stage for just about as long. For his part, P.T. Barnum began billing twins as living curiosities, highlighting their otherness alongside his other born-and-manufactured acts. The questions were always suggested to the audience. Were they one person? Were they two? Who would they be without the other? And could they, or should they, be separated? Many conjoined twins undergo surgery so they can lead more independent lives. But for some, choosing to stay together has offered something more attractive. The path to fame and prosperity. Their birth foreshadowed disaster, or so King Rama II of Siam thought. For the price of a few inches of connective tissue at their sternum, the boys were condemned to death. But fortunately for conjoined twins Chang and Eng, their sentence was never carried out. In fact, their positive celebrity was uncommon. In a world where physical differences were often treated as oddities, the brothers were no social pariahs. By age 10, the brothers had entered the workforce. They had lost five of their siblings and their father to cholera. With the purchase of a fishing boat and reputation in the duck egg trade, they became quite popular among their neighbors. In 1824, when they were 13 years old, the boys had gone for a swim. There, they caught the eye of a Scottish merchant named Robert Hunter, who, according to his retelling, at first assumed them to be some sort of creature, he said. He quickly realized his mistake, but still considered the potential of their monstrosity, again his word, not mine, and began to think about exhibiting them. Roberts and an American sea captain named Abel Coffin approached the boys and their mother, Nuck, hoping to have her sign off on his plans. Robert was also tasked with convincing the same King of Siam to give them permission to go abroad. The King was excited about the positive press the boys would elicit for their small country, and was eager to establish deeper ties with Western developed nations. For a 30-month contract with her sons, Robert and Abel paid Nock the sum of $500. The accounts of the transaction vary widely. Were they sold or simply entrusted into the men's care? Who did Chang and Nang belong to? The market for Oriental curiosities was flourishing in the West, and Chang and Nang's compound ethnic and physical makeup was irresistible in the eyes of the showman. Their first stop in America would be Boston where they were billed as the Siamese Double Boys, and they were an instant sensation. Unlike other acts at the time, the boys were not taught to do tricks or otherwise perform. Rather, they were allowed to conduct themselves as they saw fit, though they eventually would take to performing feats of strength. The price to see them was high, though, with tickets often selling for the modern equivalent of about $100. Now, where other sideshow acts were put on stage and seen as a spectacle, Chang and Ang positioned themselves more like hosts at a tea party, entertaining and conversing with curious guests with bits of English. And this hallmark, the one of respectability, 
would prove to be a lifelong pillar of the brothers' identities. They pursued their own independence outside of their management, aligning themselves with society's upper crust who came to see them. Frequently, they would entertain doctors and other spectators who addressed the question of separation. It was usually the doctors who would approach them, but the brothers were also known to seek out the council on their own. Chang and Ang were known to fight ferociously from time to time and had wildly different personalities. By 21, they pursued total independence and announced that they had fulfilled all contractual obligations that had brought them abroad in the first place. Striking out on their own, they would finally get into business for themselves. They traveled to Europe. They traveled across North America. They adopted an American style of dress, save for their long braided hair. Chang and Ang were already positioning themselves, not as servants, slaves, or beholden to others, but rather as agents in their own right. One thing they could not escape, though, was the social order they found themselves in. At the end of the day, it would still never be white. But by the end of the 1830s, the twins began to entertain the idea of retirement. They made their way to Wilkes County, North Carolina, and purchased 150 acres of land. The newly minted U.S. citizens also adopted a new American surname. They would now be called Chang and Ang Bunker. They settled into their American identity. They attended church, opened a local store, and eventually took up farming. And what's more, they each married on April 13th of 1843. In true American fashion, Chang and Ang married the farmer's daughters from down the way. Chang married Adelaide Yates, and Ang married her sister, Sarah Ann, in a proper Baptist church wedding. The papers, of course, were all a Twitter at what they called a bestial union. But within 10 months, both couples welcomed their first child. And over the next three decades, Chang and Ang and their respective wives would have a total of 21 children. The two families moved into a larger house and began farming tobacco and several other crops. They would eventually build two houses side by side for each nuclear family and spend alternating days at each. They became gifted carpenters, horse breeders, and marksmen. Chang and Ang, who had once been leased out as human exhibits, purchased dozens of enslaved people to maintain their farms. It seems they had no limits when it came to amassing the trappings of white aristocracy. But their retirement wasn't to last. They returned to the stage on and off in the intervening years, even passing through P.T. Barnum's American Museum at one point. It was said that he was resentful that he hadn't been the one to discover them, and that they found him to be quite stingy and exploitative. They paused in 1861 with the outbreak of the Civil War. Slaveholders and secessionists as they were, they backed the Confederacy, suffering many great losses with the deaths of two daughters and almost total economic ruin. The pair continued to tour the country after the war, but by this time their health was beginning to fail, and Chang's drinking, which had already been quite heavy, became even worse. It didn't help that their appeal as a form of entertainment was also beginning to wane. Barnum had evidently offered to send them on a tour through Europe, an offer Chang and Ang took him up on in late 1868. While there, they once again consulted with several doctors about the possibility of separating them, but were repeatedly told that it would be much too dangerous. And then, in July of 1870, on their way back from Europe, Chang suffered a stroke. Connected only at the sternum, Chang and Ang's bodies seemed to be aging at different rates. Chang's condition would never improve, with his brother physically and spiritually shouldering the weight of their inevitable demise. 
It's said that in the last years of their life, they became obsessed with their own mortality. They knew their time was coming. Cruel and dreadful it would be, they thought, to have to carry on with the other's corpse at his side. They didn't have to wait long, though. Chang would eventually catch a fatal case of bronchitis. And Aang, it said, died of fright before doctors could rush in for an emergency separation attempt. They both passed away on January 17th of 1874 at the age of 62, just a few hours apart. The train conductors never understood why the girls only traveled on one ticket. After all, it was clear that there were two of them. The girls went by the collective hyphenated Millie Christine. And although they fully acknowledged their two-personhood, they really only had one body. So, one seat was all they were going to pay for. A little less than 15 years after Chang and Ang Bunker initially retired in North Carolina, Millie Christine McCoy had been born into slavery the opposite side of the state. The girls had two hearts, two sets of lungs and intestines, two bladders, and were conjoined at the base of the spine. But it was only 10 months after they were born that their career began. Their first visit to the North Carolina State Fair billed them as the North Carolina Twins and the Double-Headed Girl. They were allowed to be examined by medical men to indeed certify that they weren't a fraud, that they were, well, the real McCoy. And as horrible as those examinations sound, we know this is an expectation that had been long impressed upon sideshow performers. Millie Christine had the compounded problem of being born into legal enslavement. At birth, they didn't even belong to themselves. The question that was on every spectator's mind was the same as when folks went to see Chang and Eng. Could they be separated? And more perversely, would they be able to bear children? And what would the mechanics of that even be? The girls were soon sold to a fellow by the name of Joseph Pearson Smith, and in a rash of business dealings gone awry, they were kidnapped. The swindler, it seems, began exhibiting them privately to small groups in various cities along the East Coast, during which time they once again changed many hands, turning up, as sideshow acts are wont to do, at Barnum's American Museum in New York City in 1854. By the summer of 1855, Millie Christine ended up in Quebec, Canada, in the hands of two showmen, William Thompson and William Miller, who claimed to have found Millie Christine in Boston. They soon took off to Liverpool, England, where Miller then stole Millie Christine and headed to London, where the twins were examined by more physicians and exhibited to the public for a shilling per ticket. Thompson eventually caught up with Miller and took him to court. The crime? Thompson felt Miller was guilty of stealing his property. However, slavery was no longer legal in England, but Thompson was awarded the closest thing to it, guardianship of Millie Christine. Back in the States, where enslavement was in its final legal years, Joseph Pearson Smith, remember him, was alerted to their whereabouts. He proceeded to purchase Millie Christine's entire family from their original owner, because he had a plan. Joseph traveled to England, bringing Millie Christine's mother, Monemia, in tow. They caught up with Thompson and the twins in Birmingham in January of 1837, and accompanied by a group of disguised policemen, the girls were taken away in a flurry of drama. Later, Millie Christine was said to have looked back on this as an act of mercy. They had been separated from their family so young. By purchasing the whole family, Joseph made it possible for them to be reunited with their parents. 
I'm a bit skeptical of this altruism myself. But even so, this event surely was bittersweet. The girls would go on to live at Joseph's home in Spartanburg, Tennessee. So while the rest of the family was still enslaved and working on the farm, Millie Christine was taught to read, write, and sing. The entire family was laboring, but for them, the work looked much different. On stage, Millie Christine was billed as the Two-Headed Nightingale, an homage to Barnum's wealthy, cosmopolitan, wheeling and dealing Swedish protege Jenny Lind. An ad from an English newspaper in 1871 even talked about their performance in glowing terms. She sings duets in soprano and contralto voices, the review read. She can dance as gracefully and with as much enjoyment as any ballroom couple, and even when alone, she does not lack company, being able to carry on a brilliant conversation with herself. It was amusing yesterday to notice how, in the middle of a polka, the two heads inclined to each other, and the two voices kept chattering away in their inseparable, but beyond doubt, joyous companionship. In early November of 1862, the twins suffered one of the greatest losses of their life. Joseph died, and in settling his debts, their family was once again sold off. Millie Christine's biography tells us that they stayed with his widow, and even continued to do so after being legally freed following the end of the American Civil War. They were legally emancipated, but still they continued to exhibit, according to them, for the purpose of helping the widow Smith with bills and expenses that were left to her by her late husband. However, recently discovered letters in the National Archive tell a different story, that Mrs. Smith refused them their freedom and even kept them hidden from their parents. The letters document an argument between Mrs. Smith and Monemia, forcing their mother's hand in signing over custody of the twins. In a powerful turn of events, though, Millie Christine, who were young women by this point, eventually claimed their earnings and their freedom. They made their way, together with their parents and brother, to Welsh's Creek, North Carolina, and there they bought and reclaimed the land their parents had once worked while enslaved. They would continue to exhibit in various cities in the greater area, evidently still in collaboration with Mrs. Smith. Much of what we know about Millie Christine comes from the memoirs they wrote in 1869, when they were just 17 years old. Copies of it were sold at their performances for the equivalent of about $5 today. Some scholars have raised serious doubts as to whether the twins indeed are the authors of their history, and suspect that, at the very least, their former owners had considerable control over the material, or perhaps were even the true writers. Yet it would be unfair to Millie Christine to entirely discount these materials and assume they were wholly powerless. In the fall of 1883, they headed back to their family. They spent months decorating their 14-room home and even built extra-wide doorways for themselves. They would tour off and on until Millie came down with tuberculosis in 1912. Their attending doctor was advised to not try to separate the twins, but rather to simply provide comfort. He left a message for the governor, asking for permission to euthanize Christine. Millie died on October 8th of 1912. Christine stayed alive for less than a day longer, praying and singing hymns. The governor finally granted the doctor permission and Christine was delivered a lethal dose of morphine to hasten her own death. Neither of them had wanted to ever be without the other. They could never dream of it. And now, they never would be.
Both in their own time and in the decades that followed, Chang and Ang and Millie Christine were often compared to each other. Indeed, they were operating in the world of sideshows and standalone exhibits at around the same time. And according to at least one source, the two pairs may have even briefly exhibited alongside each other. But in many ways, there seems to be more that set Chang and Ang and Millie Christine apart than held them together. Chang and Ang were quite independent from one another, even having their own families, who lived in separate homes side by side. They fought with one another. They had dramatically different personalities. They explored the possibility of separation at many points, even if it was declared too dangerous to be done. Millie Christine, on the other hand, while becoming highly independent collectively, were nonetheless so close with one another that they spoke of themselves in the singular. They never seemed to have entertained the idea of being separated. The difference between the two can likewise be seen rather dramatically in the events which unfolded after each had died. Following their deaths, Chang and Ang's respective widows initially did what any person would do at the death of their loved one. The family assembled and paid final respects. They had a local clergyman come and perform last rites. They also objected to allowing an autopsy to be performed on the two men and wanted to bury the twins in the cellar. Their local physician convinced them to allow him to preserve the bodies in charcoal so that they may continue to keep them in the house. A doctor from Philadelphia felt the twins owed their autopsy to science after a lifetime of the best medical care available. In the end, the widows finally agreed, but wouldn't allow for their connective band to be dissected. The body was brought to Philadelphia to be examined in great secrecy, much to the newspaper's chagrin. Some of Chang and Ang's entrails, namely their joined liver, are still kept at the Mütter Museum, and later doctors and researchers continued to examine their organs, even into the 1960s and 70s. Oh, and the same museum has a plaster cast made of the twins following their autopsy. In a way, the brothers continue to be sideshow oddities, even after death. And as for Millie Christine, their family guarded their grave for nine months, and it seems they had no trouble with grave robbers. In 1969, a descendant of theirs exhumed and reburied them under a new headstone, and the message upon it certainly captures the beautiful complexity of their lives. A soul with two thoughts, two hearts that beat as one. Today's tour through the sideshow gave us a look at unique siblings who, against some pretty incredible odds, came out on top. The others, however, haven't been so lucky. Stick around through this brief sponsor break to hear one more tale about the sideshow. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Before sending the sacks of apples and piles of potatoes out the door, Daisy and Violet Hilton dutifully weighed them. One by one, they piled the fruits and vegetables high on the scale at the parking shop in Charlotte, North Carolina. The produce counter granted them a bit of anonymity. After all, a lot of their customers who got to know them over the seven years that they worked there never realized that they were conjoined at the back. The Hilton sisters were born in Brighton, England, just a stone's throw from the seaside community's entertainment strip. Their mother was young, poor, and unwed, a local barmaid who wanted nothing to do with her twins after they were born. Monsters, she called them. She was hopeful that they wouldn't survive the night and was deeply disappointed to awake in the morning and find them very much alive. Her boss, however, saw their potential and was quickly given custody of the newborns. And that's how, not long after their birth, they were already being paraded in front of the public for a handful of coins. Over the course of their lifetime, the Hilton sisters would make money hand over fist on the sideshow circuit. However, the twins were kept in poverty most of their lives, their managers growing rich from their exploitation. They went to Charlotte for a reason, but stayed there due to great misfortune. In 1962, at around 50 years old, Daisy and Violet had gone on tour to promote Todd Browning's film Freaks, which they had starred in 30 years before. The movie had been recut and re-released, and the twins, whose careers had faded over the years, were hoping to cash in. But it didn't go as they had planned. In a cruel twist of fate, their manager abandoned them at the drive-in, leaving them penniless, with no way out of town and no prospects ahead. So when they showed up at Charles Reed's grocery store, looking worse for wear and in need of a job, he gave them work. Charles was a compassionate neighbor who was going to help them get back on their feet. His wife took the women shopping for new clothes and helped them fix their hair. They tamed down the trappings of show business life, the red nails, the flamboyant makeup, and outfitted them in the store's signature red and white checkered shirt. When they eventually moved on to become cashiers, a booth was even modified to fit them both comfortably. The women guarded their private lives carefully. They turned down all interviews and all offers from doctors who wanted to examine them. 
After a life in the limelight, theirs had become a quiet existence. And considering the years of physical and psychological abuse that they had endured, perhaps even a happy one. Their long story came to an end in the winter of 1969, when Violet caught the flu and then Daisy did as well. Charles checked in on them regularly, but weeks into their illness, they stopped answering the phone. A wellness check soon revealed that the twins had passed away, most likely a few days apart. Daisy and Violet Hilton were lowered into their grave just as they had passed through life, together, side by side, through thick and thin, inseparable. Sideshow was written by Robin Miniter, with narration by me, Aaron Mankey. Research for the series was by Robin Miniter, Taylor Hagerdorn, and Sam Elberty, with production assistance from Josh Thane, Jesse Funk, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. Grim and Mile Presents was created in partnership with iHeartRadio. You can learn more about this show and everything else from Grim and Mild over at GrimAndMild.com. And as always, thanks for listening. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.